Good morning, everybody. Again, welcome to Edgewater this morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, this is just our second Sunday back from sabbatical. For myself and my family, we were gone for three months. And um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that as I go along this morning. But uh, that said, it's good to be here this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles, or in the Bibles right in front of you, or the ones that are on your phone, we're going to be in Psalm 32 this morning. Psalm 32. And while you get there, I'm going to put a picture from my sabbatical up on the screen for you to look at. There it is. I was looking for it back there, but it's just up here. Uh, this is a beach called Bolsa Chica. It's at Bolsa Chica State Park, which is in Huntington Beach, Southern California. We were in Southern California for about a month and then Colorado for a couple of weeks on our way home. Those were the main two places we were away this summer. We saw a lot of amazing things, a lot of amazing things. When you travel across the country, you're going to see amazing things. If you haven't done it before, I highly recommend it. But sometimes you see things that are unexpected and unexpectedly bring you a sense of awe. Well, we arrived at Bolsa Chica. I was meeting my uncle and aunt there to spend a day there, our family and, and the two of them. And it was a beach unlike ones that we had been there, that we had visited so far during our, our trip. It was miles and miles and miles of windy sand. It kind of felt like maybe pictures that I've seen of the Sahara. A super wide beach and then just seemed to stretch on north and south forever. The dune on the beach was so high that as we were on the boardwalk, you actually couldn't see where the water was meeting the sand because the dune went up and then just dropped off. Those things, being amazing in and of themselves, were actually not what caused me the most awe that day at Bolsa Chica. What I was most intrigued by were the ships that you see on the horizon. This picture doesn't really capture them the way that we saw them. But these ships were just sitting on the horizon like behemoth robots. It, it, it made me think of Star Wars right away and the huge land cruisers and things like that that are in those movies. Yet these were sitting out on the water and just docked or anchored. They weren't docked. And there were so many of them. And the wind was getting in our face, the sand was blowing, and there was haze out over the ocean, and you just saw these monstrous, monstrous ships out there in the sea. Well, where Bolsa Chica Beach is, is just south of the port of Long Beach. And the port of Long Beach is one of the main ports that brings in goods from Asia. Ships come, they dock there at a pier, and they unberth their goods, their cargo, to trucks and to trains that then bring it to us. If you've used something, which undoubtedly we all have from China or Thailand or Singapore or wherever it may be, chances are it came through the port at Long Beach or maybe the port at Los Angeles. The two main ports on the West Coast are there. The thing is, all those ships are not normally there. 
the way that they were that day. Right now, there is a log jam, basically a ship jam, if you will, because post-COVID, there's been such a surge of want from the U.S. that retailers are trying to get more and more and more goods, trying to recover from what the pandemic brought financially to them. So they're trying to get all their Black Friday stuff in and things like that. And so there are all these orders going to the east to bring the stuff to us, and there's not enough space in the harbor. The port can't handle it. There aren't enough trains or trucks to get the goods and bring them to a nation that is wanting what the East can provide. This morning, I show you that picture because I think it's, it can be analogous to our individual lives. Wanting, 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 and, and in some ways feeling like this this need inside of us, but not knowing if, if the harbor is the heart, how to somehow get what God has provided in us, to us, delivered. We feel like there's a log jam in us. We, there's, a, there's an unsettled feeling like, I think that God has something more for me. I just don't know how to get it. Something seems to be stuck. Well, this morning as we turn to Psalm 32, this is a psalm of David. It's called a mascal of David, and the mascal can be like a liturgical term, but one way it can be translated is a song of wisdom. And I think that that's what David is shooting for here. This is a psalm of wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, from the Christian perspective, it's when one person has learned from life experience about the reality of life and the reality of the Godward life. So David here is trying to teach his readers, the congregation that this is addressed to, teach, him the, teach them the wisdom that he has found from his own life experience. I have to tell you this personally, um, just a couple of weeks ago, God gave me this psalm. He put this psalm right in front of me exactly when I needed it. I'll tell you more about that later, but it was, it was a handoff of wisdom through the Holy Spirit by David that I really needed at a specific time. So in this, as we embark on this journey through this psalm, Let's see how David is trying to share wisdom, what he has gained through experience and wants to pass on to us. With that, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak. Lord, we trust that the Holy Spirit gives counsel. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit points to righteousness. Who is you, Jesus Christ? And so we would ask the, the Holy Spirit would do all of those things and that you, Jesus, would be lifted up, that the Father would be glorified this morning. Please use your word for those ends. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's, let's get in, in here to Psalm 32. Again, this is David. We don't know what time of life this was for David. 
But at some time, he wrote this song. And he starts by saying this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is one of those Bible words that easily gets passed over. The thing is, the way that we should be reading it is, how happy? How happy? How happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven? So David is saying here, listen, I want to declare this to you as listeners. This is what I found. That I'm a transgressor. That I'm a transgressor. And by transgressor, that means I've criminally crossed a barrier established by God himself. I have criminally passed that barrier intentionally. I've transgressed against the Most High. Yet there is forgiveness for transgression. And that transgression has led me to declare to you, happy is the one whose sin has been forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So where does this declaration come from? It comes following his experience, which begins in in verse 3. Here's his experience. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is exclaiming, how happy is the forgiven because he's experienced his bones wasting away. A physical response. The groaning of an emotional downcast Do you feel what he's saying? Why is he feeling this way? Why is his body doing this? Why is his emotion responding with such despair? He had kept silent. When I kept silent. Let's keep going into verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Something is happening here where David is saying 24-7, God, your hand was upon me. Not in a way that was renewing, but in a way that was Disciplining. His hand was heavy upon him. Day and night he could not escape the heaviness of God's hand. His strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You know what it feels like to walk out of an air-conditioned home hopefully, or an office, at least a room, into mid-August heat and humidity. 
You know what it's like to try to get something done as you try to swim through the air. David is saying, Lord, your hand was so heavy upon me, my bones were failing. My emotions were wavering. I could not escape my groaning, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Why was the Lord's hand upon David? Because he had kept silent. Because he had kept silent. What had he kept silent about? He was keeping silent about his own sin. There was a sense that he was intentionally remaining in a pattern of life, in habitual sin, and he was hiding it. He was deliberately shutting off his mouth from the Lord and remaining hidden, trying to hide from his own sin. But it was God himself who said, my son, my hand is heavy upon you. With this sad, hard reality. He moves on from his experience, continues in experience, his experience, I'm sorry. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. My mouth opened. I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and I did not cover my iniquity. His response to the heavy hand of God was to say, God, I can't, I can't handle the silence anymore. I know that you're the one that I need to open my mouth to, and so I acknowledge my sin to you. And I hereby choose no longer to cover my iniquity. So I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Would there be any relief? Yes, the relief is instantaneous, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Oh, David is trying to invite us into the weariness that comes with keeping silent about our sin that affects every single part of our lives. It's not just a spiritual thing. When we hold our sin in, it affects our bodies. It affects our emotions because the Lord has made our bodies and our emotions. And guess what? He says this, if you're going to hide your sin from me, the one whom I love, you're going to keep this from me? I know, and I'm not satisfied with that. I love you too much to let you stay in that predicament. And the relief of confession, the relief of no longer covering, the relief of forgiveness leads David to exclaim, to instruct the congregation, therefore let everyone who is godly, verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. 
godly people, those belonging to the Lord, openly confess. Offer prayer to God when he may be found. Don't wait. Don't try to escape his heavy hand. Confess before the heavy hand comes. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, God, at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. When those waters of guilt, condemnation, when the waters of a weary body or an emotionally spent mind, when those sorts of things are welling up, we say, God, I can no longer stand. You've heard the sad stories about the drownings in the Northeast. People surprised by the floodwaters. But if you and I are honest, probably every single one of us has felt, even this week, the floodwaters of our own condemnation. The surprise where you're, you, this day seems to be going well, and all of a sudden something happens, and the accuser says, Guess what? And they flood into the apartment of your soul. Oh God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God comes into the flood and he pushes back the waters. He is forgiven. Her iniquity no longer exists. I am her hiding place. In me, she finds security even when the waters of accusation and self-condemnation seem to be rising up above our necks. So therefore, let everyone who is godly, when you feel the water rising, quickly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So David has made this declaration. He's, he's revealed his experience and then he's instructed them in the wisdom. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. And then the speaker switches and wisdom comes from the mouth of God himself. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, normally we think of the way you should go in terms of like, this is, this is the right way in terms of morally keeping in step. What God is talking about here is, I understand that you are dust. I understand the sin of your flesh. The way that you should go is the way of confession. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I see you. I know everything about you. Your emotions are not hidden from me. Your actions are not hidden from me. Your motives are clear as day to me. I know your sin, and I have bountiful forgiveness available to you, my daughter. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The way that you should go is not holding on to your sin, not remaining in silence, but confessing. 
Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or he will not stay near you. You're my son, not my beast of burden. You're my daughter, not my donkey. Don't be stubborn. Allow me to counsel you. Be quick to confess. The declaration from the experience leads to the instructive wisdom and then the invitation in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. David's looking back and saying, listen, I know from experience, recent experience, the sorrows of the wicked. But I also know God so quickly, instantaneously forgave that steadfast love has surrounded me and will surround you too. So he invites the congregation, no longer silent, invites the congregation into corporate praise. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now you may say, I, I know these truths. I know that in Christ, he is my righteousness. I know that in Christ, I am upright in heart. These are the realities of those that Christ has saved. But I need a fresh, a fresh, a fresh dose of forgiveness this morning. I need what David's got. Well, let me just offer this to you. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 32, they're used one other place in the Word. Keep your hand there and flip over to Romans chapter 4. Before we get into that, I want to I define a couple of things. Forgiveness. I had a good talk with my family last night on our back porch about what is forgiveness? How much forgiveness does God have? It's a conversation that kind of meandered in some different ways, but a good conversation nonetheless. And I, I think it's something that, that we need to ask that question ourselves. What is forgiveness? Biblical forgiveness is simply this. It's an offended individual looking at the offense that has been committed against them and wiping it away. Another way to ex explain it, and you can read this in Matthew 18, is someone owes a debt to one person and the person who is owed the debt erases the debt of the debtor. That's forgiveness. 
There's no expectation of the one who has sinned or the one who has incurred the debt. It is purely on the side of the one who has been sinned against or the one who has been, who, who has been owed the debt. It is a, forgiveness is a one-sided transaction. It's a one-sided transaction. How could God then forgive us, yet still remain just? Where could his forgiveness come from in a way that would still be serious about sin? Let's look at chapter 4 of Romans Paul is talking here about Abraham. Go to verse 4 of chapter 4. Now to the one who works, to the one who works, Labor Day weekend, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you go to work, you expect that paycheck. The thing is, when we spiritually work, there's only one paycheck. The wages of sin are death. So the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That is what our works righteousness accrues. That's what gets, that's what gets counted into your paycheck is the things that have come from our wages, which is death. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What Paul is setting up here is this one-sided equation of forgiveness. We are the debtors, and we owe God eternally. There is no way, no way that we can somehow approach that ledger and come out on the right side of it. If anything... The direct deposit that we're accruing is death on top of death on top of death. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, the one who is understanding this reality chooses to step away from their own ability, from their own merit, from their own work, and just believes but that belief is located in a person. Him who justifies the ungodly. There we are, the ungodly. There is him, the one who justifies the ungodly. God is able, God is able to somehow allow for the ungodly to be made just, to serve justice, yet at the same time be merciful. Merciful. 
And to the one who believes that God can do that and has done that, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So Paul gives us some insight here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count not his sin. Will not count his sin. What Paul is saying here is that blessing has to come from outside. Now, you and I know when someone does hashtag blessed, they're typically saying, look at me. I've worked hard. I've saved a lot. I've bought this. Hashtag blessed. They're actually saying, I'm the stuff. That's not what Paul's saying. And that's not what David was saying. He was saying true blessing, true happiness comes from outside of ourselves. It's an alien happiness. It has to come outside of us. That is a true definition of blessing. So when David said, blessed are those whose, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, he's saying, why would God have such mercy on me? Why would God send such grace? I'm only blessed because he has blessed me. And so his rejoicing is not based on his confession. His rejoicing is not even based on, on anything else in his life other than the fact that he is humbly in awe of the fact that he has been forgiven. But still, how could God do such a thing how could blessing be so, so full? Look at the last verse, last two verses, last three verses of chapter 4 of Romans. Paul has continued to talk about the faith of Abraham, and he concludes the chapter by saying this, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, Abraham's, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe. It will be counted to us, put into our account, the payday that we are accruing, it will be counted to us this righteousness who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins, and was raised for our justification. Paul is saying, this is the, the account where all of your funds are being drawn from. These are the ships waiting out there in the ocean that are being unbirthed into your heart. And there is, there is a magnanimous amount of forgiveness for you in Christ. His blood is eternal, and as Martin Luther said, it is a fountain that continues to flow, and we can continue to drink and drink and drink and drink. So, Christian, are you a forgiven, forgiven this morning? You say, I understand that Christ died for my sins, 
And I have no righteousness apart from him. But have you believed that today? And I'm not saying in a way that like somehow you're going to lose your faith. No. Who God saves, God saves. The paralytic in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Then get up and walk. Do you think he ever swung his feet out of the bed and wondered, are my feet really going to work this morning? Maybe. Maybe he did. But then one foot went in front of the other and he walked. If you are in Christ this morning, believe today that you can walk in forgiveness. Believe today that your sin no longer is in your account. You are forgiven. But if we're walking along, not but, and if we're walking along with what David is presenting here, I want you to follow this. Because I want to ask this morning, are you forgiven? Forgiven. Because that's where he is saying the blessing is today. If you go back to chapter 30, Psalm 32, there's some interesting things here. He says this amazing thing at the end of verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He also says, therefore let everyone who is godly and then verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. David is addressing this to people who are walking in a Godward direction. Read the Psalms and they allow for this. They don't just group everybody, even those who, who have sinned, into the wicked camp. But a psalm like this brings those who are godly and us as new covenant people looking back to Psalms, we understand by the blood of Christ we are new covenant people, forgiven. But David is saying, so walk in forgiveness today. So, one more sabbatical story. And it comes from the last day. I was on sabbatical for 90 days. This is day 90. We were at home, right there, through those walls, and it was the hardest day of my sabbatical. I don't know why, but I know it was rooted in selfishness, sin, and trying to somehow make this day the best day of my sabbatical. All I know is this, that I was rude to my wife. I was selfish with my kids. I was sharp in my tone. And all of that was wrapped up in mostly just a silence. My posture towards my family was, this is my last day of my sabbatical, and I'm going to do this day the way that I need to do this day. 
I say that to you because that was two Mondays ago. I went to bed that night and I woke up sometime in the middle of the night. I think I only got about three hours of sleep that, that night. But whenever I was awake, the heavy hand of the Lord was upon me. Fitful sleep, crazy dreams, just a God, we're going to do this now type attitude. I wish that I could, t could tell you right now that I was quick to confess, that I was quick to say, God, I know I was wrong all yesterday. I sinned against you and against my family. That's not the case. I held on to it. I'm going to sleep tonight, God. I'm going to sleep. You better let me sleep. And his hand remained upon me. I woke up that morning, Tuesday morning. I don't know what God had for me for that day. I got into his word, and there was Psalm 32. I finished some time out on the porch reading, and I came in and my wife, who's so gracious, even when I'm sharp and silent, said, how was your time in the Word? I think, I think the quote was, how, was, how was your time with the Lord this morning? And I said, this morning was good. Last night was horrible. But brothers and sisters, he's a good father. He's a good father. The thing is, oftentimes I think we, we, we walk in kind of this, this low, this low-grade reality of spiritual blah. And we're always feeling like, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Our sin always seems to be right in front of us. Can I encourage you with this this morning? If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, He has given you His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will not put His hand upon you and wants you living in a low-grade fever type of spiritual, ugh, day in and day out. The Spirit is a precise spiritual surgeon. He will counsel you with his, right, with his eye upon you. He will say, this, this is what needs to change. This is what, needs, what you need to confess. Because here's the thing. Confession 
is simply this. I, I defined forgiveness before. Confession is simply this, and with this I finish. Confession is simply this, truth-telling. Truth-telling. So when we confess our sins, we are telling the truth about our sin. We're no longer covering. We're no longer hiding. We're saying, God, I acknowledge my sin to you. I am telling you the truth about this sin that you have brought to light in me. But that's not the only truth that we say when we confess. Confession is truth-telling. We also confess that Jesus died for that sin too. And by his blood, I'm healed. That even that sin was covered at the cross. So when you confess, don't do just half. Don't just tell God the truth about your sin. Tell God, and God, through Christ's death and resurrection, I am justified. And your forgiveness is ready to flood through the deep harbor of my heart. And the Spirit is ready to say, you are mine, remember? Believe that you're forgiven and let my Spirit spread out the goods of his spiritual wealth throughout every single part of your life. So therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We ask God by your grace that we would keep short accounts with you, that your spirit would counsel us. Lord, if there are there. Are, Things in our, if there's sin in our heart that needs to be confessed, that even now we would confess it, speak truthfully to you about it, and believe this moment that you died to forgive that sin too. To be able to walk in rejoicing newness of life. God, this is your work in us. We ask you to continue to do it for your glory and for our freedom, for our joy. In your name we pray, amen.